From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris and this is Postmortem. So far this year, 2023 has been an active one for the horror genre. The year is only a third of the way over and there have been releases aplenty. Some of them like Evil Dead Rise have been big at the box office and most have not. But theatrical release is a tough ride for genre movies, especially the independent ones. The familiar titles, or what the industry loves to call IP for intellectual property, are what feed the big screen most successfully, and every original horror film that dies at the box office is another nail in the coffin of original horror movies at the cinema. But the evolution that continues at such a high rate means that streaming has replaced the drive-in and the independent theaters and art houses, so it just means that you have to search. Podcasts and websites that bring attention to horror movies are plentiful and provide an opportunity to discover these little gems that you might never have seen without their help. There is no community like the horror community for word of mouth information, and the discourse, though often rowdy, is filled with varying opinions of varying bloviations. You soon learn which of these voices coincides most closely with your own opinion. I'd love to hear what you think of what's come so far this year. Titles like Megan, Infinity Pool, Scream 6, Evil Dead Rise, The Pope's Exorcist, Skinnamarink, Knock at the Cabin, Wasera, The Bone Woman, Swallowed, There's Something Wrong with the Children, Renfield, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, and all the other titles out there. Send us your thoughts to our email address, askmickanything at gmail.com, and let's see what you love and what you don't. Our returning champion on this episode is none other than Tom Holland, screenwriter of Psycho 2, writer-director of Fright Night and Child's Play, and actor in The Stand. It's been a while since he's been on the slab, and it's definitely time to catch up. This episode is sponsored by the new sci-fi thriller The Artifice Girl, written and directed by Franklin Rich and featuring the legendary Lance Henriksen. When a team of special agents stumbles upon an AI designed to trap predators, they soon find it rapidly advancing beyond its original purpose. The Artifice Girl is now playing in selected theaters on demand and digital. Tom Holland, welcome back to Postmortem. Mick Garris, thank you for having me. It's just terrific to be here, especially on the 40th anniversary of Child's Play 2. And you, I mean, of, 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 of Psycho 2, and yeah. you did Psycho 4. So it's a party. <laughs> yeah, it's a party, and there are no dolls around. It's Norman, a psycho Norman. Party. Yeah, it's a psycho party. It's, it's very weird being 
me being the last remaining director of the Psycho Quadrilogy. Very oh, bizarre boy. feeling. But you, I want to also, before we get too deep into the psycho world, I want to talk about your beginnings as an actor, because that's something that never gets discussed. And you did so much of it. You made your living. You were a working actor before you were writing Psycho 2. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that, well, that's uh, usually, yeah, I usually don't, usually nobody is particularly interested. Thank you, Mick. Well, I think it's great. I mean, you were on all these classic TV shows like 77 Sunset Strip and all these things that that happened when I was a child and <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> when we were children. Yeah. But um, uh, but I'm fascinated to know about what that world was like, because the world of television and film has changed so much from a director's perspective, but as an actor, I'm interested in what your experience was like in the 1960s and 70s in television and film. Oh my gosh, that's a whole episode all on its own. The, uh, I, well, I, I would, I started being good in, uh, in, in high school, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a play. And the, the, the drama instructor got me a job apprenticing at the Bucks County Playhouse in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is one of the pre-Broadway tryout playhouses. Uh, it's an important one. The, uh, and that was my first experience, the business. And I don't remember I don't remember particularly being interested in acting as much as I was just fascinated by film but there was nowhere to go then i'm talking about oh my gosh maybe i'm talking about 1960 i don't know maybe 59 the uh and the, you were in a theater community so you were really out of touch with the cinematic world well there was no cinematic world available to me i'm from i'm from mid-state new york farm country a very small town called highland new york which is not so small anymore, <clears throat> but there was there was no you know, there was nobody that I knew or in the family or anything like that about about Hollywood or movies. Well, and, how did you get that first screen role? Then you were you were working in theater in theaters that would lead to Broadway shows, but um, how did you make that transition to working uh, actor? I from 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 the Bus County Playhouse, I learned about acting teachers in New York City. I was working in a clerking in a in a woman's store owned by my family. And during the week during the weekend, I went into New York and went to acting classes on Saturday. And from then I from that experience, I learned about agents going out on auditions, uh, TV commercials. Uh, and somehow I, I got into that world enough of it. It was my first summer before going away to Northwestern University, where I had gotten into the theater school. But that I got in there and I got into <clears throat> Carnegie Tech. But Carnegie had, had absolutely no academics. So I went to Northwestern. And then I went my first summer after after college my first summer after my first year in college i got a seven-year contract to warner brothers mick how did that happen how did you go from stage to a seven-year contract at warner brothers well because i this, this i this sounds vain but <laughs> i was i was attractive physically and well, i you're a handsome guy tom thank you but i i look like what was on tv at at that moment and what was on TV was the last gasp of all the Western series, which right. had come as a reaction to the advent of television, which started with the Dumont Network, I think, in 1947 or 48. And that had that had that had totally destroyed the distribution system that the, that the, the theaters that the movies depended on. And then they got they got really ripped in 1968 by by Robert Kennedy. With the you know the non uh, because they had a they had a monopoly with the right. they had the theaters as well as the studios, and then MCA bought uh, Universal. So now all right. of a sudden you had your agents producing, which is what's going on right now, or what went on at the the WGA in the last 
the last turnaround where they right, had, the writers guild but they, it, at that it, time mca was the largest talent agency in hollywood yes and lou wasserman was the head and so when mca merged with or bought universal i don't know if it was a merger or a purchase suddenly it became a vertical organization where the people who were hiring were also the people who were doing the selling to them. Yes, the people who were representing the talent were also employing the talent. Exactly. That's exactly. called monopoly. Exactly. And they tried it again. And, you know, and it, 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 that, that, that's the history of Hollywood that probably very few except us are interested in. But <laughs> Wasserman... And that whole experience explains the Psycho series and how the credits ended up at Universal, because Wasserman was was Hitchcock's agent. OK, and, and Wasserman brought him over from Paramount, I think. Yeah. Psycho was a Paramount picture originally. Originally, yeah. And what happened was. Well, what happened was the whole history of how they ended up with the psycho legacy you know i was i i i i've been doing research on uh i put together a, a photo book with, with 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 my memories on child's play right and i started through that i i i met a very very talented doc documentary maker in australia named mark hartley oh and mark is brilliant he's oh really you know him yeah Okay, well, here, here's what happened. This is almost like, Hollywood and yes, and, and fire maidens. Yeah. Just terrific, huge fun. But it's also what, what, what was sh shocking to me. It was the last video appearance of Richard Franklin, who right. directed Psycho. Two. Yes, and I've been, and I wrote the script for him. And it's the only experience I've ever had like that, working with the director as a writer. And, and Richard Franklin was a really talented Australian director who was a total devotee of Alfred Hitchcock. But how did you go from working actor to the writer of the screenplay? Was it what was your first script, as if I'm not mistaken? No, The Beasts Within was my first movie. Ah, which I did publicity on when it came yeah. out. <laughs> we'll get well, into that, that later. That, that got buried in the wreckage of, of United Artists when it crashed with uh, with uh, the, 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 the Western. Uh, of, oh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And, and well, so and that was the. Beast Within was the last release of, 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 of UA before it crashed. It made money, but nobody knew about it because everything was about Heaven's Gate. Right. If you remember, they wrote, they wrote at least one book on it that was very well known. At least. A, and I actually did publicity on the Filmex screening of Heaven's Gate at the Chinese Theater. Oh, my so. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was bad. Well, the but, stories, the stories, you know, they're, they're like, I can't believe them. Yeah, but, but we need this, to go back to Psycho 2 first. We're well, celebrating 40 let, years. Let me tell you what. So what Mark Hartley did, he had the last videotape interview with Richard Franklin, who and this is who was dying of prostate cancer. Right. And I had gone through that at the beginning of it with him and recommending doctors and blah, blah, blah surgeons, chemo. And he went back to Australia and, and 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 did it with chemo there. I mistake. Anyway, the there he was on this documentary, and then Mark Hartley sent me Richard's unpublished autobiography. Oh wow! Yes, and and Richard was a Richard was terribly talented and uh, volatile. <laughs> really i didn't see that side of him i didn't know well that. the 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 best the the best experience i ever had and and where he was absolutely wonderful and spot on was psycho 2 yeah and then it started to go a little bit off kilter with cloak and dagger which was the oh, next wow. one i wrote for him but anyway that that's that that's anyway he's he's talking and i this is just the last couple last month or six weeks i'm reading his his vision of a version of what happened with psycho 2 from the time that that he that he that he hired me and all the way through production 
And it's just, just it's, it's, I've got to figure out a way of getting that information out to the, to, a, to the fans who might be interested in the Psycho series. Yeah, well, how did he know about you? He how says did you come his, into the picture? He says in his memory that I was recommended to him by our mutual lawyer, who uh -huh. was Peter Deckham, who, right. was, who, who was still active. The uh, and he was absolutely brilliant too. The yeah. uh, but then Richard read a spec screenplay that I had written called uh, The Crystal Tower and absolutely loved it. And he says in, the, in, his, in, his, in, his, in his in his biography, in his autobiography, that he, he interviewed 15 different writers. Wow. And so, but so I got it and I, I met with him and uh, I, I guess we got along or whatever. And I had this extraordinary experience of maybe six to eight weeks where I wrote it. And, you know, I don't remember who did what I did mom with the mother with the shovel. That was yes. me. I, <laughs> I found out the, but he came into it with a vision because he was such a, devotee of hitchcock and had known him he'd had hitchcock down to usc for a for a for a for a, 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 a graduate program down there he'd also been on the set of uh i forget what it was topaz torn curtain i can't remember hmm. the uh but he was he was a richard was working with richard was like having a graduate seminar you know, at USC or something. That's where he was from, USC. He was a uh, a contemporary of Randall Kleiser. Right. And Joel Schumacher. and, and all, Well, I was a contemporary of Joel Schumacher. Joel was older than I, but I uh, knew Joel in New York. We worked together right. in New York, and I was a, I was an AD in a play at the Amazon, and Joel was the uh, the costumer. Yeah, I knew there was a relationship there. And yeah. That's well, great. anyway, so I, I I got into acting and I worked for I worked from the time I, I had to go to court to be able to sign the seven year contract. And so I was 19 or 20 and I kept at it. I did soaps in New York, which up to that point was the most money I'd ever made. <laughs> I started out with a lot of people who are who are now incredibly famous. I did episodic with Harrison Ford. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and I the, the first play I did in New York, there was a young Italian kid. It was brilliant actor, and his name was what Al Pacino. That was his name. <laughs> so, so, so I have I have stories along the way. But what happened was, people, directors would direct me, and in my head I would say, "No, that's how that's not the blocking to make it work." And right. I started to realize in those days it was about hit your marks because of the lights. The lights were, at, were, were, were there for your marks. So you'd have a, a two or three lines you'd have to say and you'd make a move. And you'd make a move to hit the second area that was lit for the scene. So it was a um, traffic cop job. Well, yeah, but it, I, I don't think at the time that I knew that because I was just so thrilled to be in work, to working. But I started to learn that there was a difference even in terms of the way the dramatic scenes were blocked and how to make them work. And I was in the actor's studio and they had, this was 67 or 68 through 71 or two before I lost interest, I think. So for the audience, the actor's studio was where method acting came from. Uh, the idea of living a part and being the part rather than, approaching it from the outside in it's from the inside out that's right and we could we could david mamet hates hates it yeah <laughs> <laughs> the uh the uh anyway uh it was all this i started to i started to i got into the playwrights unit at the actor studio as an actor where i was doing actors for writers who were writing one act plays and they were writers who were mainly working in television but some of them were having success in features like jim bridges uh -huh. I, I know knew jim since forever yeah the, the china and, syndrome among others yeah. Uh, yeah and paper 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 cut cut the one about lawyers oh paper, paper chase pa yeah. paper chase yeah, the, terrific uh, movie. Yeah, 
but I started, so I started, I started somehow directing the scenes that other writers were writing in the actor's studio. And I would be in them, but I would also cast them and I would block them. And God help me, but the scenes worked better. So you were learning how to direct from a stage perspective. How to, how to direct actors. Yes, that, that, but I really started to learn it for the, for film by acting. And because I was a film actor, basically, I think I did a couple of, a couple of summers of summer stock and one of winter stock. But I was, I was, when I, once I came to Hollywood and got in the actor studio, it was all about film. You know, yeah, there was, they, they, they did stage plays, but the emphasis was really on film. Right. I mean, and was, you have a seven year contract with Warner Brothers. So you were working a lot as a working yeah. actor under contract. Could you tell the difference between the different directors in doing television and, and features and the work that you did on the lot there? Yes. Yes. Some were marginally more inventive than others. But I mean, it, there was sort of an, un, you did not question a director's choice in a television show. Maybe if you were the lead, you know, but right. I, you know. The, what were your but, favorite parts that you had during that era? Well, I think that the favorites would be the soaps I did out in New York. Really? And that oh, was yeah. live TV then? That was live TV where if you, if you, if you didn't nail it, <laughs> if, the, if the flats came down, you kept on moving anyway. Because there was like a half hour or an hour time delay, and then it went to the West Coast out of there. But upstairs was Dark Shadows. Oh, yeah. Dan Curtis. Yeah. And that, that was just beginning. And I, General Hospital started there, too, at ABC, I think on West 67th Street or something. And I, anyway, I learned a ton about acting and acting for the camera there because there was time. You know, you started to know, you started to, you started to work with whatever camera went with a red light. There were three cameras always, you know, but all of that I started. So I didn't get a formal education. What was happening? I was getting it by work. Which is a lot better way to learn. Well, especially if you're able to, if you're able to make a few bucks at it, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. But I wanted, I want, I wanted to write, and then I wanted to write and direct because that's what I saw around me at the actor's studio and the playwrights unit. That's where I met Stuart Stern. That's where I met Paul and Joanne Newman. I mean, you know, it's you know, it's a whole lifetime that went on. I'm sure you have the same stories. Uh, I didn't come out of acting school. I didn't come out of performing. I came out of being a singer in a rock and roll band. But but I, I started as a writer at age 12. And okay. that, was, that was my passion, was writing. <clears throat> and I loved movies, and I loved the genre, but I loved all kinds of movies. And it everything came from writing for me. And <clears throat> writing and loving movies and watching movies and doing publicity and being allowed to be on the set and watch a movie be made. That was my education. Amazing stories where you directed one of the episodes. I, uh, I still remember you taking in and introducing me to Richard Matheson. Ah, yes. Yes. The great Richard Matheson. Wow. Well, that was, that was my first job uh, that I was paid as a writer was on Amazing Stories. I, I literally went from food stamps to writing for Steven Spielberg. And that's where I met you and so many of the other amazing filmmakers I got to know during that period. But that was my film school. All of those years you worked as an actor, that was, my film school was put into two seasons of Amazing Stories. Uh -huh. and, being on the sets with Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis and Joe Dante and Martin Scorsese and all these people who were directing episodes that I had written. Thanks. Yeah. To <laughs> uh -huh. Thrilling, so, right? Thrilling. Thrilling. So, thrilling. So tell me about making that transition. You're, you have a lucrative career as an actor. You're living a life you didn't expect to live in beautiful Southern California. <clears throat> and was it a decision to, put that behind you and gamble with the life of a screenwriter or was it a transition that took time it was it was a slow transition where i tried to back it back it up i kept on working 
as an actor all the way through 1982, which is the same year that that, that Psycho 2 came out. But I got a job on Winds of War for Dan Curtis in, in playing a submarine captain, you know, and I did that for like three days, three days, but I was still making money from it years later. So I didn't really stop acting, but I stopped the monomaniacal pursuit of it. Uh-huh. And instead, that pursuit turned to screen, turned to writing. I tried, I tried writing long form prose. And I it was I could not make a novel. I could make short stories, but not novels. The uh and I started writing screenplays because it was happening around me. All those people were writing screenplays at the actor studio and it became a social group, people that I knew. Uh and I started writing screenplays and I was a lot better at that. Hmm. I had a real visual sense. I had a by that point, I had a sense of cutting and moving it and, and a lot of different things. And then I just got better and better at it. And I really started, well, I mean, the, the my first, well, I broke through in television with uh, blah, 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 Initiation of Sarah, which was a hot TV movie. A very hot TV movie that was known for its European version. Yes, it was. It was known for its wet T-shirt scene, too. Yeah, this was a genre film for television network tv but in the european version they had added some nudity to it yes yes. so it became very well known because of that and it's it's historical because it's good but also because of that element they've remade that two or three times mick amazing i hope you got paid each time well if if i did it was so little i don't remember it I know that feeling, Hocus Pocus, too. Um, Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Anyway, um, so that was The Beast Within. That was your first produced screenplay. Was it a spec script or was it an assignment? No, it was. No, I guess it was an assignment. I went in and I met with Harvey Bernhardt, the producer, now no longer with us. Also, who did The Omen and lots of. Yeah, The Omen films. And he had bought a title called The Beast Within. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to take a teenager and turn her from a teenager into a beast. And the writer was getting a divorce and had never written it beyond the uh, beyond like a page uh, 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 a proposal. And uh-huh. so it was, so The Beast Within is an original, but I didn't get original credit for it. I didn't know enough in those days, but I was the only writer on it. The... Uh, and that, I, I thought that that would give me a, a hand up and finally it would start. I had been starving since about 1974 through about 1978 or nine. I had a good five years in there where things were really tight. You know. And But you dug out of that hole. Here's this movie, The Beast Within, which, like I said, I did publicity on that. And I was in Mississippi for part of that shoot. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And it was an amazing experience. And uh, I want to hear the story sometime. I had no idea. That's Philippe Mora directing. Yeah, Philippe Mora, a very talented director who'd, who'd done a documentary called Brother Can You Spare a Dime? That's right, which was excellent. And he's a which sweet man. Really opened things up for him. He also did Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> or was it or was it howling three? I think it's two. But a very talented guy uh, and a sweet guy. But so your first movie is a genre film. Were you drawn to the genre originally, or it was just what was offered to you? They were the entry level jobs, Mick. Yeah. And at that point in time, horror was the redheaded step stepchild of Hollywood. Yeah. You know, I mean, you were really looked down on. If you if you if you did it, there was a pervasive snobbishness in the in the at the academy about horror. You know, it was just it was like you know, for God's sake, get out as quick as you can. Hmm. You well, know, that's one of, of the things we would talk about at the masters dinners is how little respect the genre would receive from the mainstream press and industry. Yes, but now it's the most consistent moneymaker they've got in terms of genre. And that that's a whole I, that was your opening monologue. But I mean, what they've done something else, Hollywood, or Hollywood has they've replaced the movie star with tent poles. Yep. 
Yep, you with know, IP. They, yeah. They destroyed they destroyed the star system which Hollywood was built on. So if you want to know why Hollywood is, you know, in 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 terrible trouble, that's one of the reasons. Well, what's interesting is that Chucky is now the star. You know, it's not the actor, but the doll that you helped create. For this know. for this for this uh child's play, a visual memoir book that I just put out. I went back in my files and I found the first iteration of it that I did. And nobody knew the, 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 the even in even in, in treatment form, it, it screamed out to be called Chucky, but nobody would have known who Chucky was. So I named it Child's Play. Which is you a know. great title. And it became a huge hit that spawned a franchise. Well, it spawned. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, you could, nobody could have been more surprised than me. The, uh, but I think the, I think the genius. Oh Christ! I'm going to sound like a raving idiot. The, uh, it's when I decided to take a serial murderer and put him inside the doll. Yep. And then inside, and then give that doll to an innocent little boy, and that was just so shocking as a concept back at the time in the time you know there was a there was a visceral uh uh, uh reaction to it as though i had destroyed uh, the dream of childhood you know the <laughs> the beauty and the safety and i mean i got boxes of letters from the uk uh it's the reason that 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 uh united artists and up in a in a stroke of uh of suicidal tendencies they sold the, the sequel rights to universal yes they did yeah after it had been a huge hit maybe they had made the first the first like the first child's play sequel dropped a lot and the third one really crashed i think maybe they sold it after that but they sold they didn't think there was any more life in it when they sold it <laughs> and then <laughs> and then Along comes Bride of and all the others to follow and the Chucky TV series. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at what they've done with Psycho. Oh, I mean, yeah. Bates I mean, Motel. But, well, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, in yours, Stefano must have hated two and three because he ignored <laughs> them totally in four. Well, I think what he wanted to do was make a direct prequel sequel to the original film because People, everybody knows the original Psycho. Yeah. We know Psycho 2, we know Psycho 3, and appreciate all of that. But for one thing, it's the writer of the original screenplay for Psycho who was brought in to do a prequel sequel. So it may have been his ego or just the idea that I don't know 2 and 3 like I know 1. I was there throughout 1. And you were there? No, him. I, I'm. This is Joe Stefano's thinking. Oh, okay, I'm, okay. I, I'm. I'm wondering if maybe that was his familiarity uh, was with the original Psycho, and for him to do an extension of that, I think he just wanted to skip over and go right to the today. Go from before his movie took place and have young teenage Norman Bates, Henry Thomas, whom you've worked with as well. Um, and and continue that story and then they followed it through with they followed that that prequel concept with uh two television series after right yeah the the well the bates motel tv movie with bud court um and then bates motel the series which was which, terrific right yeah but that but was very good it didn't have much to do with the idea of who norman bates was from the movies it it definitely made a turn. It started out that way, but then it started turning more to uh, drug dealers in high school and things like that. Which oh, okay. Is, uh, uh, an unexpected turn. I but, can't keep up anymore <laughs> with, with, with the volume coming out, you know? Who can? Who can? Yeah. Media yeah. is everywhere and it's at our fingertips. You can be anywhere on the planet and tap your iPad and watch whatever you want anytime you want and it makes it disposable and and maybe not worth as much you know the the value of going out to a movie theater and and get your parking and pay for your movie ticket and get your snacks you're invested in what you're going to see but in terms of media 
immediacy, it devalues it, I think, to a sense. What do you think? Just what you said in spades, underline it 25 times. I'm just thinking, I'm in, I've I come back full circle to acting. I'm in, I'm in a movie called Tarot, T-A-R-O-T, as an actor, oh. by Peter Higuchi, a very talented filmmaker. And I know Peter, yeah. In fact, okay. I have a link to the, uh, the trailer now. I have to check it out. Okay, good, please. But I mean, what they're doing today, I mean, the biggest sets in that, like the interior of a church, is all done on LED walls. Right, right. You know, I mean, you can see at some point, we're going to, we're not going to go on location anymore, Mick. I don't know, not in our lifetime, but you can see it coming. Well, Hitchcock would have been very happy. Yeah. He hated <laughs> he going on holograms. Yeah, he hated going on location. He loved shooting on stages. He loved sitting in his chair and directing from his chair and not moving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From what I'm told and what I've read in all the stories. No, there are there are a lot. There are, I've heard so many stories. Yeah, the cameraman once she said she said put a 75 lens on that. The cameraman said I think it'd be better with a 50, and he was gone in an hour. <laughs> I bet he was. <laughs> Boy, that's the wrong director to tell that. Did you ever meet him? I used to see him on the lot at Universal, but only from a distance. Me too. I'd see him when I was there on, you know, for, you know, going in and readings and acting jobs. And they used to have over on the side near where uh, Barham, I guess, is, they used to have all these little cottages. Right. And he had one of them, including yep. his own private dining room and chef. That then used Aaron Spelling had the same had the same setup, you know. Anyway, John Landis moved into Hitchcock's office after he left it. I love John. One of yeah. the best nights I ever had was at Masters of Horror, watching <laughs> Tarantino and John Landis one one up each other on trivia, <laughs> yeah. and they finally got into doing box arts. On you know on the on the VHD releases, yeah. And yeah. I said, I'm out of here. I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Too much minutia for you. Yeah. How did you find working with Tony? Complex. We've this was his, this was his last last movie. Well, it was one of his last. It was his last uh, studio film. Certainly, um, he was ill, um, but at that time he was not uh, admitting to it because we would not have been able to get insurance um, under the circumstances. <clears throat> and it also painted such a dark brush at a time in our history that was not very um, generous. Um, he had done Psycho 3 and wanted to do Psycho 4, but Psycho 3 had not succeeded. And so he was assigned this director whose last movie was Critters 2. Um, so, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so we've talked about the challenges of it, but the fact was I learned a lot from him. He was brilliant and prickly um, and eventually generous once he trusted me, but I had to earn his trust and it took, it took a while. And we only had four weeks to shoot the movie. So oh my God, that shot, it, shot it in 20 days. We shot in 24 days, but they were six day weeks in Florida on the Orlando lot. Okay. So did you work with Tony at all? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the sense that I was, you know, that I was, I'd written it and he, he wanted to talk to me and I went in and I, uh, I think I brushed up that, uh, uh, I put, I, I think for him, I wrote that scene where he talks about toasted cheese sandwiches. Oh, up yeah. in the attic with Meg Ryan, but I put—I think I wrote that or rewrote that for him. I can't remember, but I know that I did. There were there were constant complaints about Meg Tilly. The, uh, uh, you know, he was—I—I I thought he was the most one of the most brilliant act, mentally, intellectually brilliant yes. actors that I ever met with, because this I'm back in trivia again. But I used to be able to name you pretty much any actor in a classic movie. Well, he they got bored playing the game, you know, who would who would name who? And he said, okay, let's change it. Let's do cinematographers and composers. <clears throat> there you go. <laughs> I was gone. I was lost again. 
Then I found out that he used to play the, the, the trivia games all the time with Stephen Sondheim. And he and Stephen Sondheim wrote The Last of Sheila. That's right. Which is a terrific mystery. Very kind of Agatha Christie style. <laughs> anyway, I like I like Tony a lot, but I never lost the feeling that it was Norman underneath yeah. there. Well, yeah. unfortunately, that was the case with his career as well. You know, he it was the best and worst thing that could happen to him. The people could only see him as a version of Norman Bates from then on. And before that, he was a heartthrob. He was, was a romantic you know, lead, romantic lead. He had hit record. You know, he was he was a Hollywood heartthrob. And the course of his life changed after Psycho. Some would say for the better, some would say for the worse, but um, it certainly have, painted I, him I, in a box. I'd have to ask him why he took it, and I never did. Just to work with Hitchcock, I don't know. It seems to me the opportunity to be the lead in an Alfred Hitchcock thriller. Uh, the only director at the time, other than Frank Capra, who was known by name to the public, um, must have been an irresistible pull. Well, I know. Well, who the hell ever knew it was going to work so well? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think I knew what what editing and montage was before I saw Psycho. I well, think I learned after that. In those days, pre-1960, most directors came from the stage and they were mostly about working with actors, directing actors. And the reason the cinematographer was called the director of photography was because he designed the shots and he would work with the director and do the technical aspects of it. But Hitchcock, <clears throat> along with a lot of the early silent filmmakers, Hitchcock was a director who was as much about the technology and the physical technique of making a film as he was about performance. And from what I hear from people who worked for him, he rarely ever gave direction to his actors. Paul Newman hated him. <laughs> did did Torn Curtain with him. And Torn yeah. Curtain has one of the best kill scenes or death scenes I've ever seen. But but he said he'd, he'd ask Paul, and Paul would ask him what, what this was about or that was about. And Hitchcock said, look this way for, for the count of three and then over here. Yeah. I mean, that's all he ever got, you know? Well, the thing is to hire actors you trust. Well, Vera Miles spoke very highly of him. Of yeah. him. She was heartbroken because she was going to play the Kim Novak part in, in Vertigo. Uh, Vertigo. Yeah. yeah. And she, she, was, she got pregnant. And, yeah. and Hitchcock got mad at her and didn't forgive her for a long time. Yeah. Sad stuff, but Hollywood history. Mm. And we've been able to be witness to some of that. Now, well, something had to be going on with Psycho that it's lasted 40 years, 45, 60 years, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, 60 years of making the, I think it was Stefano that came up with the idea of killing Janet Lee in the shower as your right. third act break, which was the real shocker in those days. Yeah, the first act break. Yeah, oh, first act break. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry, first act. Yes. Yeah, it's so shocking. Well, I'm interested in your process as a writer. Do you outline everything? Do you sketch everything in or do you start on page one with an idea and just burn through it? What is your process as a writer? And then we'll talk about as a director. Oh, God. The, uh, all of it, I've tried everything. If there's, if there's any way to try to write, I've tried it. And if there's, <laughs> if there's any way I failed it, I, I mean, I've, you know, part of me feels like I failed at everything. You know, and well, then, you've got a mighty nice house in the hills for having failed at everything. <laughs> well, thank you. The but you know the I'm writing novels now. I finished I finished The Notch was the first one and I'm working on Crystal Tower now. Oh, from the, that spec script that first got the, you yes, as a writer. That also got me an in-house an in-house deal with Corolco, and then it was too expensive and I was trying to kick it down and then they got in trouble. Mm -hmm. you know the uh you have these in your life but it's it's the you're the one who's sort of responsible somewhere back there 
when I was between the two Stephen King projects, I think, between Langoliers and Thinner, you said that I should start writing novels because you were. Yeah. And I, yeah. That always stayed with me. And I, I, after that, I would try periodically. Go ahead. No, no, I, I remember that very well. For me, it was a way to blow off the steam of completing a project, being done with all of the 16-hour work days and the six-day weeks that were really seven-day weeks. And the idea of just sitting down in front of a keyboard with an idea, no concerns about budgets or egos or schedules or anything like that. And for the love of the language, you're writing a blueprint when you're writing a script, when you're writing a short story or a novel, you're writing a tapestry, you're filling it in. And it's internal as well as external. So the feeling as a writer was incredibly fulfilling in ways that screenwriting can't be unless you're also directing the script. Well, you said it very, very well. I mean, I, I, I will say that it's the old argument. A move, a screenplay is a blueprint for a movie, but it's not the thing itself. A novel is the thing itself. And when you're a director, you're making the movie. You're not maybe making the movie. Once you're hired to direct a movie, that's a green light. When you're a screenwriter for a movie, you're hoping there will be a movie that comes of this. Well, that's everybody that we know. Yeah. I mean, every, every, exactly. there's, no, there's nobody I know that hasn't at one term or another lived in development hell. And yeah. I think that that's even getting more. My complaint, you know, you were talking about with streaming and the, and the volume of, of, of productions that's coming out, the larger your audience, and it is now going global or worldwide, the more homogenous your product has to be. In other words, the less it has to have anything in it that's going to upset anybody. Mm. Okay, yeah. so as you as you as you as you make one huge global audience just one audience, and they're trying to service everybody, you know all the rough edges and anything that's probably a distinctive voice is pretty much wiped out. That's a great point, but you know because there are so many different streamers and they're so competitive and they don't have advertising. Well, some of them do in their cheaper plans now. On their way. On the way. Yeah, but they don't have censorship like the networks have censorship. The broadcast networks have censorship and you'll get a TV version of Dead Ringers or you'll get something really dark, you know, um, that you wouldn't have gotten from broadcast or even cable TV. But now they all have to compete with one another. So I think they are competing for the creative minds and, and those creative people, those creative leaders will seek out the ones who will give them the most freedom. So you have to have muscle to flex, but there at least is a panoply of platforms available to us now that we didn't have in the past. Okay, good point. I mean, you know, that this is the argument. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is at the same time, you know, I'm saying that they're killing, they're, they're destroying the star system because they don't want to pay, you know, charismatic actors. Yeah. But that is, that's, that's the big reason, the reason that people have gone to film since the creation of film. Yeah. No Charlie Chaplin, no, you know. The, but that's, uh, yeah. If you, if you don't have a cast that draws attention, that that a cat that an audience can sympathize with you don't have a movie either you know and there's still you've got tom cruise you've got brad pitt you've got a handful of people who are still nearly reliable movie stars but even they are not as reliable as as they were you know there's there's no guaranteed movie star movie that will absolutely get great box office well there's there's something else the cultural element has been taken out of it the uh, used to be all our lives that Hollywood movies were soft American power, that they went out and set standards for clothes or, you know, for the car you drove, you know, or, you know, whether or not you smoked or whatever. But American cinema has by and large lost the hell of a lot of its national, of, of its American feeling. It's, it's hard to describe, but, you know, but I, 
you know, what it used to be the, the Hollywood made movies for the world. Yep. Now Hollywood is making Indian films and it's making European films. And, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, and, and I kind of like that. I like the influence of the, the world on world cinema uh, and on Hollywood cinema. And, uh, you know, I, I see that potentially as a positive. So, okay. But let's, let's get back to your process. You know, you, you say you've done every different kind of approach to writing in your directing. Do you storyboard? Do you shot list? How flexible are you? What, you know, I've seen you work because you did an episode of Amazing Stories, and then you worked for us on uh, Masters of Horror. But the process off the set, how, how what is your prep? Um, do you like to have everything planned out a la Hitchcock where it's boring to him to shoot because he's already shot it on storyboards? Or is it a sense of discovery each time you get on a set? Nah, it's a, it's a mixture. Anything that's a visual set piece, which is anything that's uh, suspenseful, I storyboard very, very explicitly. If you get into a big dialogue scene of, of, of page and a half, two pages, no, not particularly. But if it's somebody creeping around with a knife in their hands, I'm there for every for every shot. You know, the I mean, you know, in, the, in other words, uh, 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 child's play was boarded from beginning to end. Wow. You know, and I, I also boarded uh, Fright Night that way. Uh, one of the less successful films that nobody ever asked me about is Fatal Beauty with Whoopi Goldberg. With Whoopi Goldberg, sure. Yeah. And all I was trying to do there was beyond the action. I was trying to encourage uh a little bit of improv hoping for comedy you know because it wasn't in the script but that was that was her talent or a lot of her talent back she was then. she is so talented she's been on the show too and uh just a total treasure she is a brilliant mimic is what i at least she was at that moment in time mm. i mean she was not the, it wasn't elaine may you know it, it wasn't it, i wasn't you weren't getting one-liners but you boy when she did somebody you know, I mean, it was like, it was incredible. Did so, you I mean, see yeah. her one woman show before you made the movie? No, I never did. Mm. But that's the one that, uh, that uh, Mike Nichols directed, I think. Right. Yes. Yes. And I heard it was brilliant. Yeah. I think they did it a version for HBO, but she got the color purple by doing that one woman show in the screening room at Amblin for Stephen one-on-one. Well, I, oh, she did it for him one-on-one? Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I thought Color Purple was just great. So fantastic and so beautiful. And what an amazing debut performance. I mean, she had to carry that whole movie, and it's her first movie. Well, Oprah, too. Yeah. Same for Oprah. Mm -hmm. So, what was your experience on Fatal Beauty? It was very, very difficult because I had never done, and you mentioned it earlier, I'd never done, I was starting in daytime and going to going to all-nighters by the end. And it really was, you could you bullshit it, but it really was a seven-day week. It was definitely a six-day week, yeah. you know, and that ground me up in a way that I, I mean, in other words, by the end of it, I was really whipped. How do you deal with that, keeping a cast and crew positive and enthusiastic and and willing to kick ass every time they come to the set every day oh boy my experience mick is that there's a a rise and fall of the movies you start out with a lot of nervous energy it sags somewhere towards the middle and if it's working and if it's feeling right it picks up as it goes into the end and gets better and it gets faster but you know i had it like that anytime anyway i've also had terrible trouble you know uh, like making the doll work in child's play yeah. <laughs> where do you see that where do you see the visual memoir when you see something like 22 puppeteers surrounding <laughs> me i was just i look at the pictures and i say how did i ever do that you well know? imagine gremlins too <laughs> what that must have been like with all the hundreds of puppets Can you imagine I can't. <laughs> has he, has, has Joe ever, ever, ever put it down? I don't think so. I don't think so. But tell me about the process of putting this down because 
this is something that's brand new that's just coming out. Um, your your visual history of child's play. Tell me about the idea of putting that together into book form. Well, I didn't. I didn't. It just. I don't know. It just kept going. I saw the remake from UA. You know, I wasn't exactly thrilled. The uh, the uh, and I don't think it's the writer's fault because obviously they started out to shoot it as a Christmas movie and then pulled back, but it didn't work. The so I started looking at you get a reality working with a real puppet, right. okay, and especially if the puppet is difficult <laughs> to work <laughs> with. I mean, it takes it, it trying to get the eye line right, you know, it, while you were moving the body parts. I mean, it was every 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 almost every shot was was difficult, but some shots worked brilliantly. And so what I was experiencing it while I was making it was part of me was worried sick about the audience accepting the doll being really capable of being a killer, you know, of being able to, to move, to hold the knife. The suspension and, of disbelief, yeah. Yes, well, you, where you'd have the shot where you could look down on him and you were hiding all the wires coming out of the floor <laughs> that were making his mouth and eyes and everything else move. But it was, I was constantly looking for a look, Ma, no wires with those <laughs> shots that I hope would sell the believability of the doll moving. And Mick, I didn't know until I got into the cutting room. And then I really, I guess I didn't know until I saw the first preview. But what happened from, from, from the first preview was these, the, the scenes with the doll, the scary scenes with the doll all worked. I mean, and, but it didn't mean the film worked. I mean, the film was too long. There was, you know, the there was a, a, a ton of, of, of work that got finer and finer as it went along. But but the seams didn't show. No, this, well, a lot of it was about hiding the seams. <laughs> you know, the same thing with thinner. The, uh, but the, it was that I knew that I, I knew that I had something when I wrote it and I put that first treatment in the visual memoir. How did I do it? I, 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 I put the, 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 the photos down in the order that I knew I shot them because I remembered. And then I looked at it and I, that's why I have 150 photos and I looked at it, but there was no story with it, hmm. you know? And then I'm going through my files and everything. And I looked, I looked, I found the treatment. It's not long. But I found the treatment that I gave to UA before they gave me the green light, before I went and I wrote it. I said, this is what I want to do, because I knew it was so revolutionary putting putting Charles Lee Ray in there. He's the killer, you know. So but I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I did anything. Do you know how you got to this point? Uh, just opening the doors of opportunity that uh, are offered to me. Yes, but at the same time, I've made terrible mistakes. I've made bad movies. Uh, I fought with the wrong people. I have burned bridges that I shouldn't have burned, and everything else. But yet, at, at but yet, when I look back on it, this I love some of the movies that I made and wrote. Tell me the best experience you ever had on a movie, making a movie, making a movie, Fright Night. Yeah, as as far as writing a movie. And being there beginning to end, Psycho 2. But mm. that's that's because Richard came in in his head with specific sequences of kills. I guess you call them kills now from Hitchcock's movies that he wanted to replicate in Psycho 2. So the psychiatrist getting stabbed at the top of the stairs is really the the detective from Psycho getting stabbed at the top Arbogast, of the stairs. Yeah, yeah, that. But I mean, but so many moments were taken from his from Hitchcock's entire oeuvre or whatever it is. Yeah, and you were able to be there as the writer, seeing it brought to life by a very talented director, and you didn't have to do the heavy lifting. <laughs> Of directing it, you mean? Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, but I mean, I never saw. He had Dean Cundy, who was excellent, yeah. and he had a very, very strong group of actors. And the only problem he had was with was with Tony throwing up a snit fit about Meg Tilly. But it was more <laughs> than a, it was more than a you know, it was more than that. But he he didn't feel he was getting 
you know, actors will bounce when they're in a scene. They'll go off yeah. each other moment to moment. He yeah. wasn't getting that from her. Interesting. And she's the female lead. And if you don't have that. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, she gave great performances. She gave a whole string of them back then. Yeah. Agnes you know, the, God and all of that. Yeah, that's right. And and her sister's really talented. Jennifer Tilly, who just happens to be a big part of the Chucky franchise herself. Well, she did a film called Bound. I was, love that. Yeah. Okay. Which, which yeah, the, the Wachowski brothers at the time. Yeah. Now sisters. That's right. But it's an excellent film. Done it's for really no, great. Yes. And I forget the, 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 the male actor, Italian pants. I forget. Pan, Pan, Joey Pantoliano. Yeah. I think it was him. Yeah. The uh, but anyway, terrific film, and that's when I first spotted spotted the sister. Yeah. So yeah. you know, how did I do? I don't know how did you know? I mean, I always think. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm being too honest, but you know, I because I, I, I read Richard's memories, and. He had a tendency to blame his crew and his and his and his line producers. And you can see it, you know, reading through, you know, movie after movie, what's going on. You know, that right. in unions, because they always called tea time down in Australia. Right. When he needed one more shot. <laughs> <laughs> but no, well, I don't know how we've gotten here. Who are your heroes? Who are your cinematic heroes? Oh my gosh. In our generation? Of any generation. Well, Marneau, which I look I, I was thinking about. I looked at I looked at his silent films with uh with Richard when I was when I was writing Psycho 2, Sunrise. Yeah. I one think it's the great one. Yeah. Great, great the, uh, of cinematic silent cinematic art. Well, I am I'm I, I saw everything with Richard because because he was really a pedagogue in a lot of ways. I saw everything that Hitchcock had made and I saw a ton that John Ford had made because those were in Richard's uh, opinion, the two greatest directors. <laughs> they know? were the USC heroes of that era. Well, that was, but that Richard was very USC of that moment. Yeah. yeah. But then the, the, so was Rand Randall and so was, uh, you know, Star Wars and all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard didn't change very much. I like Melville myself. Yeah. You know? Alfred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm reading more now, Mick. Who are the authors that you really like? Well, I just, I just read the, the Sumner Redstone book interview, uh, uh. which will really twist your head. There's no fiction to it, but oh my God, for a Hollywood story. Mm. So you're Ooh. reading nonfiction more than anything? Yeah, but I, yeah, yeah, but I, but I, 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 I'm widely read all over the place. I've read fantasy. Brandon Sorensen. Mm, don't know that. Yeah, the, the, uh, I've read uh, a couple of books. I can't remember names of titles, but, but, but California about L.A. gangs. Mm. You know, the, the the brown and black gangs and the war going on there. I've read two books on that. So it's a new kind of noir that's coming out. Yeah. Where there where there was absolutely no moral judgments whatsoever, mm. just showing you the brutality of it, which is what it seems to be. But that's sort of what you're saying with you know, with with with, with a lot of movies coming out. Not movies, but series. Yeah, there's a lot of nihilism out there. So what is the one project? you still hope to achieve would it be turning crystal tower into a movie yeah i'd like yeah i'd like to um, yeah uh, crystal tower i'm writing it now i'm forty thousand words in it is a streaming series if, it, if there ever was one in my humble opinion the uh but I've, i i walked around for 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 four to five years with day of the triffids oh trying to get, wow. and i i wrote two excellent scripts on that when I had the deal set up at uh, Universal, Mark Platt, uh, wow. and they were just scared of the of the of the cost of the effects wow. of making the killer plants. Now it's going to turn around, and it's going to be—I figure whether it's Amazon or HBO—it's going to be a huge streaming series. And the BBC already did it as a series. Was it any good? It was good. It was okay. good. Yeah, definitely. That I didn't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, the, that, was... but that, you know, that's like uh, uh, Triffids in England is like the high school, the, the, the book in high school everybody reads. Right. Exactly. Everybody's part of the culture. Yeah. Well, Tom, you've had such a tremendous history, a tremendous present, and hopefully Crystal Tower will be more of your future. This hour has blown by. And Amazing, isn't it? Got to do it again. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. It's so good to catch up with you. No, it, it's just good seeing you. You <laughs> look too. really good. <laughs> so do you. John. I mean, you look and great. you got your hair and you got <laughs> so a big smile on your face. God bless. Always. God bless. Mick. And everybody out there who's listening, everybody's got their own journey, but you're going you're gonna to end up wherever you want to be. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.